Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining me once again for the CIO Strategy Snapshot Conversation. Glad to welcome back Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dreho. Jason, welcome back. I know there's a lot here to catch our listeners, our clients up on. So looking forward to a productive conversation, though. Hope you enjoyed a nice weekend. Welcome back. Thank you, Dan. Yes, I was off for a week, and a lot has happened to discuss this morning. So, you know, kind of catching up on all the all the developments. Plenty for us to cover this morning. Absolutely. So, maybe Jason, just to provide a bit of context for our listeners, thinking back to last week, it did begin with Fed Chairman Jerome Powell having delivered his congressional testimony. That was a two-day event, and he did convey that the Fed will likely raise rates more than the Fed had indicated back in December with a 50 basis point rise in March being on the table. Now, by the end of last week, we did have the largest bank failure, Silicon Valley Bank, since 2008. That event has triggered concerns about more bank runs, as well as fears of a wider contagion, and that resulted in policy actions that were announced last night. Now, the markets are assessing that this morning with a flight to safety mentality at the moment. We're seeing that. So let's walk our listeners, Jason, through the issues here. So late last week, markets were rattled by the swift collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, again, that being the second largest U.S. bank failure in history. To level set it for us, Jason, can you speak to exactly what happened, how we got to where we are this morning. Well, Silicon Valley Bank has a pretty unique business model. You know, it's primarily servicing the VC-backed companies in Silicon Valley. Uh, So they're lending to those kind of companies. They take deposits from those type of companies more so than retail investors. Uh, What they do, like a lot of banks, is they were investing some of those deposits uh, into treasury bonds, into mortgage-backed securities, uh, you know, very safe investments. What happened, though, over the past year as a result of uh, you know, the rise interest rates, pretty dramatic rise interest rates, the market value of those securities has declined. I mean, that kind of corresponds to what we saw last year where the value of the treasuries were down near 10% because of the rise interest rates. Now, banks don't have to mark to market these securities if they're held to, uh, you know, to maturity, if they're classified that way, or even if they're like, you know, asked for sale, they only have to realize potential, you know, price losses if they actually sell them. What's happened with Silicon Valley Bank is that they started to have capital withdrawals. So, you know, you know, people who had money deposited there looking to transfer somewhere else, largely because, you know, well, like a lot of banks, you're going to get maybe more if you, you know, move your money to a money market fund as opposed to what you're getting with your, your general checking or savings account. As they started to get some of those deposit withdrawals, they needed to, you know, sell some of their assets to raise the money for that. Doing that meant selling some of these assets at losses. Uh, these losses were pretty sizable, so they then would have to go out and, and try to raise capital, which they did last week. That failed. Ultimately, then they don't have enough money on hand to lead to the deposit flight, and that's when ultimately Friday the bank went into receivership and was controlled by the FDIC. So that was kind of you know how the story unraveled very quickly. It was effectively a bank run um, that was fueled by the fact that uh, while they had high quality assets, the market value of them was less than what the book value was. And that forced them into a difficult situation. So, you know, there's also aspects of, of how they manage their liability and their sort of the maturity structure of their assets versus their liabilities. That's the essence of the problem of, of how the situation with Silicon Valley Bank kind of unraveled very quickly by the end of last week. 
the developments they carried over into the weekend, thinking back to yesterday evening, Sunday evening, the Treasury Department, Federal Reserve, as well as the FDIC, they announced a policy response to the developments you walked us through just a moment ago. So can you speak a bit, Jason, to what this all entailed and what should it do to stem contagion effects as well as the prospect of similar bank failures or bank runs? Well, the issue with kind of bank runs in general is that if customers and and depositors see one bank go under, they would naturally question, well, is my bank at risk as well? Therefore, do I need to take you know, savings out of uh, you know, one bank or, or deposits out of one bank and just hold it in cash, put it somewhere else? So the fear is that this could become a series of bank runs. It could cause a contagion in the banking sector and lead to broader systemic problems, which you know, memories of 2008 are still kind of you know, fresh for, for bank regulators, for people in the industry. This is something that the policymakers wanted to, to prevent from happening. So the response we got last night is designed to stem that uh, from happening. So one thing that the FDIC did was that they're going to guarantee all the deposits at Silicon Valley Bank. Now, current regulations and rules are that you know, deposits up to 250000 are guaranteed. Anything beyond that is not guaranteed. What they're going to basically say is all those deposits, even beyond that amount, will be, deposit- will be guaranteed. The signal wouldn't be that they might do that for other banks as well, and therefore... You know, if you don't have to worry if, if the bank goes under, your deposits will be made whole. There's no reason for you to take your money out of bank X and move it to bank Y out of fear of something similar happening to that, to bank X. So that was one thing that was done. Another was that the Fed announced a new program called the Bank Term Funding Program. Uh, this will offer loans to banks for up to a year where they can put up collateral, and collateral could be treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and other qualifying assets, and they'll value them at par. And this is critical because... You know, these treasury bonds right now that you know that a bank might have bought two years ago, it's down in value 10, 15% because of the rise of interest rates. If the bank had to go and sell it on the open market like SVB was trying to do last week, they could take that big haircut, whereas they can go to the Fed, put out that treasury bond, and the Fed will take it at par. So there will be no haircut. So they'll basically, it's a way for the banks to essentially monetize the value of those assets without taking any single you know, haircut. That greatly diminishes any risk of, of having sort of a whole a capital hole on their balance sheet. Uh, so that that's kind of you know basically saying we're not going to let the, you know the, these sort of unrealized losses to cause problems for the banks. So if you look at those two actions, kind of guaranteeing deposits and allowing the banks to raise money essentially at par, collectively that's a really strong signal from policymakers that they won't allow you know more you know, bank failures or, or bank runs to to you know materialize as a result of this local valley. You know, uh, you know, situation trying to stem any contagion risk across the wider financial sector. So that was kind of, you know, very strong signals, kind of reminiscent of what they did in, in March of 2020 when the pandemic began, and they very quickly ramped up a variety of tools and used tools that ultimately or created tools that ultimately they never had to use. So basically, said, you know, if you have credits out there outstanding, if your banks are holding that, you can sell them back to, you know, to the Fed and we'll buy them at par. Now. Those facilities were rarely ever used, but just that signal itself created a very strong mechanism. And once they did that, that was part of the reason that ultimately created stability in the financial markets. So the actions last night are kind of reminiscent of that. They're, they're basically saying, we're going to do what is necessary to kind of backstop and, and prevent wider systemic risk. Then if you look at the overall health of the financial system and the banking system, you know, they've, things are much better shaped today than they were in 2008. Liquidity ratios are much stronger. Capital ratios are much stronger. And the unique aspects of Silicon Valley Bank, they don't really apply to certainly larger banks. So the risk of a broader you know, panic across financial markets, that is, is much lower. 
It's also unlike 2008. The, the issue with the, the bank holdings of some of these bonds, like Treasury bonds, these are high-quality assets where they're not going to take kind of losses on in terms of repayment, uh, unlike with mortgage-backed securities and subprime lending back in 2007, 2008, where you could clearly lose your, you know, not, not get repaid. So it's not an issue of quality or asset impairment in this case. It's almost more of kind of the accounting measure of, of how these things are done. So different fundamental picture today. So much kind of more solid actions and much more aggressive policy response right out of the, the gate. So I think the risk of this being a broader systemic problem, you know, right now is, is relatively uh, low in our estimation. Um, but it's clear that the market, you know, will need a little bit of time to kind of get reassurance that that is, you know, as the case for the broader public to understand that the depositized banks and variety banks are, are not at risk and therefore there's no reason for it to see kind of contagion spread into to other banks. Having that historical context is very helpful. So I do want to single in on monetary policy for a moment. As was mentioned a bit earlier, if we go back to the early part of last week, the focus was on Fed Chairman Jerome Powell's congressional testimony and singling out how the Fed might continue their rate hikes. So with that in mind, Jason, what should we expect from the Fed in light of the Silicon Valley Bank developments? And what does that mean for the economic outlook from here? Well, it's quite a reversal in, in less than a week from, you know, you know, Chair Powell giving comments implying, you know, 50 basis point rate hike could be on the table for March. Uh, either they will likely have to do more than the two rate hikes that they would have indicated from the December economic projections. That was widely anticipated. Um, so, there, so they went from that to now the possibility of like having to, you know, you know provide some essentially bailouts to, to, you know, to the private sector and the banks um, you know, as of last night. If we just abstract from the Silicon Valley Bank situation, the U.S. economy right now uh, is in a situation where the Fed should hike more rates you know, uh, you know, next week. And additionally, in the May and probably June meetings, so I think three more 25 basis point rate hikes, just given the economic fundamentals, certainly seem warranted. You know, the U.S. economy has continued to show resiliency uh, to start this year. We saw that on Friday with the jobs report where 300,000 jobs were created. Uh, the details of the report were a little less strong, and there's certainly overall indications that the labor market is kind of moderating to some extent from being a really tight situation to something that is still tight, but not as uh, to the extent that it was. But inflation is still, you know, quite high, and we'll get the February CPI data on Tuesday morning. Um, it should come down, but still at very elevated levels, that would justify the Fed to continue to kind of you know, raise rates. Now the Fed has to consider these financial stability concerns. Uh, with what's needed for the economy. Now, it might seem contradictory for the Fed to offer this new you know, program last night for banks to you know, offload or, or kind of you know, borrow against you know, certain you know, kind of collateral at the same time then raise rates next week. Uh, but it is possible to kind of separate the two situations. Something similar happened in September in the UK when there was this LDI crisis where you saw pension funds were selling long-term yields, like 30-year yields was causing bond prices or bond yields to rise dramatically. Uh, the Bank of England stepped in, was willing to buy some of those bonds to stabilize the market. At the same time, it would signal we need to raise interest rates more. They stabilized the market, things kind of calmed down, and then they were able to proceed accordingly. We could see a situation where if the, the banking concerns and the SVP concerns get sort of you know, ameliorated in the next few days by the end of this week, that the fake is in feel comfortable, well, we could still do a 25 basis point hike next week, that we've contained that risk that was unique and idiosyncratic and not a broader systemic problem. And the economy right now needs to be, needs to have, um, you know, continued rate hikes. It's also possible that if the panic 
for some reason, you know, continues to spread, uh, it leads to ultimately maybe like a recession happening sooner. Then, well, then the Fed is, you know, maybe done hiking rates or could actually have to potentially, you know, cut rates. So that is still on the table. But as long as the situation or if the situation calms down this week, then the economic data would warrant the Fed to do 25 basis points next week. But given how soon it is and they are in the blackout period where they cannot maybe effectively communicate what their intentions are, they may err on the side of not doing any hikes next week, still raising the dots of how many hikes they'll do later, indicating that in the press conference, Powell will say, will hike rate 25 basis points you know, in March or in, in May, in June, in July. So try to give guidance that there's more hikes coming, but they thought it put it in this point in time to, to pause. So that's the outlook for the Fed. Um, there's still a lot of uncertainty for next week. I think that the trend should still be for more hikes ahead. Uh, in terms of the, the economy, the situation with Silicon Valley Bank is pretty unique, and it shouldn't reflect broader trends in the overall economy. The data is still showing some resiliency. But what the event of last week does demonstrate is that Hiking over the past year of the Fed raising rates four and a half percentage points in total is having an impact. We know it's impacted the housing market. Now it's impacting, in some cases, you know, the financial sector, you know, bank lending and kind of credit creation. So this is the long and variable lags of monetary policy. This is an example of, of that impact. Um, so we, it's the likely the economy will flow regardless of the SUV situation as we move into the second quarter and later into this year. Um, whether this exacerbates that, that's kind of remains to be seen. Uh, but if we talked a week ago in terms of the economic U.S. economy, we would have said that there's still a scenario where there's a soft landing, there's a scenario where it's a mild recession, which you know, and there's still a scenario where there's a hard landing. I think all those things are very much on the table. But given the news of last week, it probably shifts a little bit more towards you know, maybe a little bit more towards a hard landing scenario. But you know that could change again by the end of this week if the data comes in favorably for the Fed in terms of CPI data, for jobs data, that would kind of give them justification on economic grounds that they have to do less hiking than people anticipated just a week ago. So tomorrow's CPI print, it sounds like, Jason, that will be quite key. I do want to pivot over to market conditions for a few moments. As we're speaking now, we have about seven minutes to go before the market open. I know the futures here in the U.S., they did close in the red. We do see as well interest rates much lower. So, Jason, can you provide us some perspective on what have we seen and what's been driving the activity? Well, the story this morning, the story at the end of last week, it's a flight to safety. Uh, you know, you can see that just dramatically in, in the move in interest rates. The 10-year yield is down, uh, uh, you know, 40 basis points, you know, in just a week. The two-year is down 80 basis points. Uh, you know, all the household expectations, the Fed is going to do less. So from after Powell's testimony last week, the market was pricing that the Fed would raise the funds rate all the way up to 5.7%, which was four 25 basis point hikes in total. Now it's down to the Fed raising it to 4.75%, which is effectively no more Fed rate hikes. Now that seems a little bit kind of overdone, but that's the, the dramatic move we've seen, as, you know, especially this morning as there is this kind of safety bid. The yield curve uh, has also become less inverted. So the difference between the two-year and the 10-year Treasury fell to 110, negative 110 basis points after Powell's testimony. Now it's around minus 70 basis points. When the curve starts to re-steepen like that, that's usually a sign that, well, now you think a recession is starting to become you know, more imminent. So I think there's clearly signs in the, in the rate market that, not just flight to safety, but kind of a signal there's growth concerns that the, the risk, risk of recession has gone up, the Fed can't do more, and ultimately it's going to have to start cutting rates sooner rather than later. So it's a mix of shifting views on growth, but also a lot of kind of flight to safety in the rates market. And if you pivot to equities, 
Last week was the worst week for the year for the S&P. It was down around 4.5%. Defensive sectors did better than more cyclical sectors. Small caps were down you know, even more. Um, the U.S. dollar was up around 1.5% on a trade-related basis against the flight to safety and buying U.S. assets, you know, buying treasuries. So that's sort of the story at the moment. Um, you know, some of it, I think, is, is the best. You just sort of want to see how this will all play out, see whether you know, the broader public is not going to be you know, uh, you know, move into sort of panic mode in terms of the, you know, the banking situation, whether there will be any other kind of banking problems. If that doesn't materialize in the next couple of days, it looks like things are kind of coming down. Some of this is likely to be reversed, um, and you can start to see you know, some of the, you know, the regional banks that sold off you know, 12% on Thursday and Friday last week. Those could kind of bounce back, given the backstop measures introduced by the FDIC and, and the Fed last night. But at the moment, investors just want to see how things kind of shake out, and we can start to see some pretty, you know, also sizable moves on the other direction as things kind of, you know, calm down and recover, stabilize in the next day or two. Now, Jason, in terms of positioning, clearly there's a lot of near-term uncertainty, volatility in the markets. If we take a longer view, let's say of three to six months after this current shock has played out, Jason, how are you recommending that investors be thinking about positioning their portfolios? Well, if you think about like where we were just a week ago, even if we go back two to three weeks ago when we did our last house update, you know, the market level was such that the 10-year Treasury yield was close to 4%. The S&P was around 4,000. And the general message we had was that wasn't a bad time to be you know, adding some duration uh, to portfolios. It's the idea that can provide a bit of a hedge, you know, in a risk-off scenario. And, you know, we didn't anticipate, you know, quite this event happening this quickly, but that was sort of the rationale that if, you know, if the market became concerned about growth, you'd see yields decline. Uh, you know, the fundamental story hasn't changed. And so if things kind of undo some of the, the market moves in the next couple of days, I think that same general sort of thesis applies. I think for investors who didn't sort of follow the advice a couple weeks ago, you may not want to sort of chase the market as yields have declined as much because the risk is that the 10-year could sort of go back up to you know, 37 3.8% very quickly if the data this week is, is solid and, and investor fears about contagion risk, you know, kind of calm down. But the other story that we had from a couple of weeks ago was that Given the uncertain outlook, given the challenges that existed irrespective of the Silicon Valley you know, bank situation, was that we didn't see a lot of upside in U.S. equities overall at an index level. Um, so the term that I use would be you get you know, uh, you know relatively returnless risk if you buy U.S. equities. So then maybe move up the capital structure of corporate America if you buy you know, you know investment grade high quality investment grade corporate bonds. You're getting decent yields when the tenure was at 10 percent. Uh, oh, sorry, at, at, at 4%. So you kind of basically buy, you know, corporate America investment grade bonds over, you know, U.S. equities. I think that, that same sort of, you know, kind of, you know, thesis holds. But given some of the extreme moves in, in, in the markets just the past couple of days, I think now is not necessarily the right time to kind of put that on as, as things can kind of bounce back you know, very quickly. But I think the overall message of being sort of up in quality uh, across fixed income, you know, being – slightly more defensive in your equity allocation, being underweight financials, which has been an underweight sector, is there could be more challenges there. Also underweight tech, which there could be reverberations within the tech sector, given the downfall of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, something else to kind of keep in mind. Uh, And the other thing is um, to look outside of the U.S. That's kind of been one of our messages is that look beyond growth and the U.S. If we look at market performance last week, international equities, developed markets, Europe, even emerging markets held up better than U.S. equities. Um, and their valuations are you know, a bit more attractive. So if you think about having a diversified portfolio, looking to sort of alternative asset classes that, you know, from what we saw last week, hedge funds held up a little bit better. 
Um, those are the ways to kind of, the, you know, the same playbook that made sense a couple weeks ago still makes sense. But we have to let sort of the dust settle after you know, some very dramatic moves in the, in the past. We did feel a little bit overdone given what we think is the fundamental story and given what the policymakers announced last night. Well, Jason, I know this remains a very fluid story. Of course, we will keep our listeners, our clients up to speed as developments continue to unfold, though it was very helpful to hear from you this morning, hear the current thinking from the UBS Chief Investment Office, especially when it comes to positioning during these volatile times. So, Jason, thank you very much for this timely insight and for spending some time with our listeners and clients here on top of the morning today. Appreciate it, as always. You're welcome, and have a good week. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.